Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Emergency aid and empathy amid what he describes as impossible carnage, Jan Egeland and his humanitarian organization say Israel must find a way to protect itself without harming civilians in Gaza. Powerless. As the situation in Gaza worsens, an Ontario man tells us what his family there is facing. He says he's dreading the moment their phones die and he loses all contact. Calls of duty. Reserve soldiers across Israel are mobilizing to fight Hamas. We reach a father in Jerusalem who has four sons joining the fight. She jumped at the chance. Just days after she went skydiving at the age of 104, Dorothy Hoffner has died. The friend who introduced her to the sport says she never lost her zest for life. Sticking point, the co-founder of Pride Tape is baffled by the NHL's decision to ban players from wrapping their sticks in a rainbow and tells us LGBTQ plus hockey fans just want the sport they love to love them back. And game over easy. A brunch joint in Oakland is all for bottomless mimosas, but its tolerance for diners who overindulge has bottomed out. Its new policy? If you hurl on the premises, you'll have to cough up some dough as well. As it happens, the Thursday edition, Radio guesses the owners had a spew too many. Tonight, Israel's complete siege of the Gaza Strip continues. Since the attack by Hamas on the weekend, Israel has pounded the densely packed Gaza Strip with airstrikes and reduced neighborhoods to rubble. Israel has also cut off access to food, water, fuel and electricity in the territory, where more than two million people live. Aid groups are warning of a disaster and calling for safe channels to get humanitarian relief into Gaza. Jan Egeland is the Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. Yesterday, he sent a letter to foreign ministers around the world calling for support. We reached him in Oslo. Jan, have you received any response yet to those letters you sent to foreign ministers? We have initial response that they are studying them, that they agree with the content, and they are looking at what can be done in terms of getting humanitarian corridors and getting safe spaces for civilians in Gaza and also a resumption of aid there. So we're hopeful. I think there is a lot of diplomatic initiatives and especially hopeful that the United States and Egypt can help us get the Rafa crossing open. Is that good enough, though, to, to when you hear them or read the, read their responses when they say they're, they're looking at it? Is there time for them to study this? Well, I, I mean, the, the, there is uh, not much time at all. It's impossible to describe the carnage in and on the civilians of Gaza. There are now hundreds of thousands in, in this tiny enclave that have been displaced. I heard that 22 
of my 52 colleagues have uh, had to flee from their ho homes. We have uh, aid workers on the ground. The mm -hmm. aid workers are also having to flee with the civilian population. But I'm, I'm hopeful we, we need to, to resume uh, some sanity here. I, I just had the opportunity to speak now live at Al Jazeera Arabic. It was mm -hmm. just after the Al Qassam Brigade, which is the Hamas military branch, came with a declaration. I know they're watching. My appeal to them was release the hostages now. They call them prisoners of war. They're not prisoners of war. They are women, children, elderly, uh, disabled people. They have to be released. But I'm also telling Al Jazeera <laughs> Arabic that, of course, we're also calling for these corridors, these safe zones, and an end to the bombardment, which is now making it possible for us even to get uh, relief to the children of Gaza. So no aid is getting in right now? Just to be clear. No aid is getting in. No aid worker is able to move, really. There, there are hundreds of thousands who are going to the UN schools. Uh, imagine 82 schools with 150,000 people. What, what kind of water sanitation uh, facilities is that? It's, it's, really, it, it's, it's really beyond uh, our ability to help at the moment. That's why we need an end to the bombardment. Even those who have worked towards peace, though, as you likely know, Jan, say that, that Israel has no option but to retaliate, uh, given what Hamas has done and is still doing. And I'm referring to a conversation I had earlier this week with Yossi Balin, who was certainly instrumental in the Oslo uh, peace process, and you were involved in that, in that as well. Uh, and as much as he still hopes for peace, he says there's no option for Israel other than to retaliate. So what should they be doing? If, if they're saying, you know, as they've always said, that Hamas is, is in every part of, of Gaza, we have to, to root them out, what should they be doing instead? Well, I, I think they should fight terror and terrorists. And and not retaliate against the children of Gaza. I mean, wh 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 where did where did revenge come in as a as a rational uh, tool to fight terror? There is a million children in Gaza to have a siege on Gaza so that not even relief for children can get in uh, to cut off all electricity so that wounded children cannot be operated upon. When did that become a, a rational response? And how did that make people a, a less bitter and less filled with hatred? Israel's energy minister, as you may have seen, wrote online on social media this morning, quote, humanitarian aid to Gaza, no electrical switch will be turned on, no water hydrant will be opened, and no fuel truck will enter until the Israeli abductees are returned home. Humanitarian for humanitarian, and no one will preach us morals. End quote. You said you had hope, well, but does that discourage you to hear that? Yes, it does. Because, but uh, but then uh, you know, after the terror that they lived through, how 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 can I tell them to 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 be rational in a way? But of course, if they want to lose the moral high ground, if they want to make this some kind of a mud wrestling uh, match with the Al Qassam Brigade of Hamas. I think they're doing a, a major mistake, and I, I think they will lose what is a moral high ground and the sympathy. Uh, the war on terror 
ended up with black sites and torture after the United States were, was hit after 9-11. I really hope that this will be a fight against terror and not some kind of revenge uh, operation. You have connections to, to Israel. I know you've been traveling there for a long time. Your brother lived on a kibbutz. You told some of our CBC News colleagues. You also went to to school there, to Hebrew University. So you understand this conflict and this ongoing cycle. But I wonder what it, what it says to you. you know, I was reading some of the responses to the bullet points you put on social media of what you wrote in your letters to these foreign ministers. And one of the responses you know, said, why don't you care about Israeli lives? And what does it tell you about where we're still at in this conflict? And well, that's it, the kind it, of response uh, you get. No, I mean, you're, 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 you're really at a, a very a crucial point here. I have been in many peace mediation efforts and have been dealing with many, many conflicts. There is no place where it's so polarized as this. I mean, when people are cheering terror against Israelis and when now people are saying we don't care about, uh, you know, Palestinian children, then it, it shows me that we're very far away from any common ground of any peaceful coexistence, which means that both sides are undermining their own sec- uh, security longer term. Uh, there has to be a minimum of empathy for the civilian population on both sides. If not, they will be condemned to eternal cycles of violence. Israel has a right of living in peace and security, so do the Palestinians. How much time do you think that without aid getting in, you know, people in Gaza have? Well, those who are now under the rubble, the children who are now under the rubble without being rescued, they are dying as we speak. So they have no time. For each hour that goes, more people will be affected, more people will be uh, will be dying. Soon we will have, of course, uh, numbers of civilian deaths, children dead in Palace and uh, in Gaza. That is far beyond the numbers even after this horrific terror in Israel. There is no time. We, we should have an end to this uh, cycle of violence now. Jan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Jan Egeland is the Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. He's in Oslo. This week, Israel formed an emergency coalition government to focus on its war effort, a marked turnaround after months of bitter political division, which also extended to the hundreds of thousands of military reservists in the country. It's been widely reported that since Saturday, reserve soldiers have been flocking to military bases even before being asked to report for duty. Alan Sachs has four sons in the reserves. We reached him in Jerusalem. Alan, in these very difficult times, I know the last 24 hours in particular have been difficult for you and your family. Can you tell me what you've been dealing with? A day of very mixed emotions. I began yesterday with the funeral of the son of Uh, one of the founders of my law firm, a young man, a doctor, who was in fact killed while attending to the wounded down in the south, the father of a young family. I ended the day yesterday in Mount Herzl in Jerusalem at a military funeral, the funeral of a cousin of ours. Then today, uh, I've been to four different houses of mourning to comfort mourners of people who've uh, tragically been uh, taken from us. But at the same time, inspired by the way the people here have 
come together in an extraordinary manner. The amount of volunteering, the willingness, the unity of the country is truly inspiring. In terms of giving back, four of your sons, four of your children are certainly doing that. They have been called up. They are reservists. They've been called up to serve. Have they all been deployed now? Two of them are deployed. One is, uh, I suppose you'd say he's attached to the Navy SEALs, and he mm-hmm. was uh, already on Saturday down in the south in the middle of the fighting in one of the most intense areas of the fighting. My oldest son, who's 40, was uh, is called up to the north where the border is quiet but tense. Another of my sons is in airborne rescue, so he is essentially on call for whenever the need arises. Uh, my fourth son hasn't done military duty for a number of reasons for a few years, and he's been bombarding his unit every three or four hours saying, I want to come. How do I get back in? How do I do this? So they're in different situations, but I do want to emphasize one thing. My, my wife and I are blessed with four sons, four fine sons of whom we're truly proud, but there are hundreds, there are thousands of families in Israel in exactly the same position. What have your sons said to you? as they set off for this? They don't say anything. My oldest son uh, was in Jerusalem. Within 20 minutes of hearing the siren, he had his equipment and was driving off to the base. Mm -hmm. My youngest son was in Haifa. Within 30 minutes, was on base and then getting his equipment and being helicoptered down south, you know, joining the fighting there. They don't speak. There's no question. There's no discussion. You know, we were very, very happy last night at around 11 o'clock. My youngest, the one who's been in the, you know, in the thick of things, phoned to say he's fine, he's great, he's really happy with his comrades and just telling us not to worry. Is that even possible uh, as a parent? Look, <laughs> we've had children in the army in battle, in wars. My youngest only left the army six, nine months ago after being five years in a really, really frightening unit. Uh, My oldest enlisted 17, 18 years ago. So we've had children in the army. And in some sense, you get used to it. You say your quiet prayers. You trust in the the military. You trust in the good Lord. And uh, you realize this is what has to be done. This is the price to pay in order to live free in a country of our own. Does the talk and, and the possibility of a ground invasion of Gaza that could be long, certainly deadly and complicated. Does that intensify your worry, even though, as you've said, you're, you're experienced in terms of sending your sons off? Listen, the events of last Saturday were a short, very sharp and very sudden shock. The idea of a ground offensive, which will be slow, uh, grinding, is much, much more of a worry because you have time to worry about it and be concerned about it. You have to balance that with the fact that there may not be any alternative. This current attack has cost the lives of certainly way above a thousand Israelis now. And we have to ask ourselves, are we going to just quieten the situation for three or four years until it repeats itself because there is a pattern of it repeating itself? Or do we have to deal with the problem root and branch? And if the decision is to deal with it root and branch, then a ground offensive is essential. And our belief and our trust and our faith and our willingness you know, to, to do whatever is necessary with the country will carry us through. I just spoke with Jan Egeland of the Norwegian Refugee Council, and he cautioned that 
that, in his view, by endangering civilians in Gaza, Israel is at is at risk of losing the moral high ground and perpetuating, you know, contributing to the perpetuation of this, as you know, very long, ongoing cycle of violence. What would you say in response to Mr. Egland? How much of a concern is that for you? I am a Western liberal, and I am very, very concerned about the issues of moral high ground. I understand that the foundation of Western civilization is that every individual was created in the image of God, and the loss of every individual is a tragedy. But Israel has to solve this problem because otherwise it will repeat itself. There is no question of that. It will simply repeat itself. No doubt Hamas has been emboldened by its achievements, and uh, it's not going away. On the on the issue of, of your sons, you mentioned that you've, you've been here before and you've sent them off before. How do you brace yourself this time for someone knocking on your door with news? I hope my children don't listen to this, but the number of times I've thought to myself, what would I say at one of my son's funerals? Oh. Um, it is frightening inside, but outside you have to show that you're strong and you're stoic. And you realize that what we're doing is we're doing it because we have nowhere else to go. This is where we are. We have no alternative because the alternative is too horrific to imagine. We know that life is fragile and therefore we have to live it with joy and to the best of our abilities and hope and pray that our kids stay safe. Helen, thank you for your time. And, and uh, you mentioned the funerals that you've spent, you know, the last day. At, uh, I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you, and uh, let us hope for better times and hope for peace, genuine peace. Alan, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Alan Sachs is a lawyer with four sons in the Israeli military reserves. He's in Jerusalem. Meanwhile, the blockade of Gaza is reducing everything, including the flow of information, to a trickle. Later on the program, we'll talk to a man in Canada who's doing whatever he can to stay in touch with his family there. When Dorothy Hoffner landed on solid ground early last week, this is what she heard. Ms. Hoffner had just jumped out of an airplane at the age of 104. She was trying to break the record for oldest person in the world to skydive, and she very likely succeeded. Here she is talking to NBC News after that tandem parachute jump. I think if you have the opportunity to go, go and enjoy it. And you would enjoy it. It's really a wonderful feeling to you know, to see the, the earth under you. So pretty. Just a week after that astonishing feat, Dorothy Hoffner died in her sleep at her senior's home in Chicago. Joe Conant was Ms. Hoffner's friend and the person who got her into skydiving. We reached him in Chicago. Joe, does that sound like the Dorothy that you were friends with? I have a huge smile on my face <laughs> hearing that. Me too. She, that was her. She... She, as soon as she landed, she stood up and said, wonderful, wonderful. That was so beautiful. I loved seeing the river and the 
scenery all below me. It was just so wonderful. She loved skydiving. Were you worried about her at all, though? I mean, she was 104 years old. She she used a walker on land, but she was keen to be, to be up there jumping out of a plane. Were you worried, though? I wasn't worried because her first jump was when she was 100 years old. <laughs> I worried about that jump. I had planned on going skydiving then, and I had mentioned it to her at dinner, and she said, I want to go too, and I thought she meant she wanted to watch, but (laughs) she was intent on jumping, and so she jumped and did a fantastic job with just an ace at it, and Dorothy just seemed ageless. She didn't seem any older at 104 than she did at 100, so when she said she wanted to go skydiving this spring, I thought, sure, let's do it. She's ready for it. And let's be clear for our listeners who haven't seen the jump. She didn't just jump out of the plane strapped to the instructor. They did a backflip before opening the chute. They did. did. Would you call her a daredevil? No. She would consider her life completely uninteresting. But she did say that she liked roller coasters and, and things like that. But skydiving really surprised me. She really took to it and loved it. What was her her life like? Who was Dorothy when she wasn't jumping out of planes? Well, Dorothy was born in 1918, and her first job was working as a telephone operator Mm -hmm. for Illinois Bell at 25 cents an hour. She made $10 a week, she told me. And she continued to work as a telephone operator her entire work life. And she worked for 43 years. And this year was her 43rd year of retirement. So she had actually been retired as long as she had worked. Mm. She grew up in the Chicago neighborhoods. She had wonderful stories of all of her neighbors. She remembered everybody and had vivid descriptions of them. It was wonderful to listen to her stories. What's her key to, what was her key to longevity, do you think? She was, she was clear about that as well. Oh. She always said that her key to longevity was being lazy. She said, noted. she didn't want to do something or if it caused any stress, she wouldn't have any part of it. And she considered that laziness. And she said that's why she lasted so long. It's pretty great advice. I can hear everyone (laughs) writing it down right now. Everyone who's listening. How did you how did you become friends? I was a nurse for another resident at the Brookdale Senior Mm -hmm. Living Center and He had just moved in, and we were scoping out the place, figuring out where the dining room was, where the laundry room was, and everything else. It was the last Sunday of the month, and we ran into Dorothy, and she asked us, introduced herself, and asked us what we were doing, and we said we were, you know, looking for where dinner would be, and she said, oh, no, 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 the last Sunday of every month where there's a brunch, so you two are coming to (laughs) brunch with me, and you are my guests at my dining table. And that's how we met Dorothy, and we remained guests of hers at our dining table for all of the years post that. Oh, the, the, the stories that must have been exchanged. Oh, my goodness. We had a lively table. She certainly had an intellect and was very curious about everything and very interesting. I feel like, I mean, I never met her, but you're describing what sounds like a very kindred spirit. Key to, I like her motto about the key to longevity. I hear she also always made sure to carry chocolates. She always had uh, chocolates in her walker that she would grab your hand and she would open it up and put a handful of chocolates in it and close your hand over them and then just say, there, that's for you, honey, and, and walk away. <laughs> what did she make of all the attention she got after she started doing this in her 100th year? She, she could not understand it. She, really? To her, this was just another skydiving jump. And 
she had no interest in setting a world record. That just happened to be something that came along with it. At first, she was a little upset about the amount of attention she was oh. getting. But then once she saw that it was an opportunity to meet new people and make new friends, she then took to it and loved every minute of it. I know you're working on getting her, her latest jump recognized in the Guinness Book of World Records. Yes. If, that, if it goes through, how are you going to mark that occasion and celebrate her without her there? That's a good question. I haven't thought about that yet, but I definitely think we'll have to plan some sort of celebration. The timing of her death, How? what do you make of it? Dorothy was 104 years old, mm-hmm. so any time that we had with her was was a gift and was wonderful. Perhaps out of a sense of accomplishment and <laughs> fulfillment, she maybe felt that she had done enough, but I don't think so because... She said as soon as she landed on the ground that next she wanted to go on a hot air balloon ride. And she was talking about her 105th birthday and saying that she hoped that nobody was planning a birthday party for her. She (laughs) didn't want a birthday party for her 105th. What do you think you'll miss the most about her? I will miss calling her grandma and her calling me her grandson. That was just such a wonderfully affectionate term to call each other and I will miss hugging her when we're saying goodbye because we would hug and hold on to each other so dearly and it was just a a wonderfully fulfilling experience. Well Joe I'm sorry for your loss but I I thank you so much for sharing your stories. I'm glad for all those brunches and chats you must have had together. Thank you. You're welcome. I, I, I just feel incredible gratitude for having known her. Thanks Joe. You're welcome. Joe Conant was a friend of Dorothy Hoffner, who recently attempted to break the record for world's oldest skydiver. Mr. Conant is in Chicago. Dorothy Hoffner died in her sleep this week at the age of 104. Ordinarily, Jay DeGosbrain might be inclined to confront a shoplifter. But in this case, he kept quiet because this wasn't your average shoplifter. Mr. Bear decided to come on in and have a look around and do some shopping. And yeah, the door was open. He just sauntered in and slowly walked around the store and sniffed a few things and saw the little bags of candies, gave it a sniff and gently picked it up, went out in the parking lot and ate it. (laughs) So found what he wanted and basically left. Didn't make any aggressive moves of any kind or just out for a shop. To be clear, Mr. Bear was not the name of a person. It's Mr. DeGosbreen's polite way of addressing the actual black bear that pilfered a single bag of gummy bears from his store in Lake Cowichan, B.C. this week. The store owner was drinking coffee behind the till when it happened and decided not to fight Mr. Bear for the five cents owed on those gummies which was probably a wise choice. And besides, they're cheaper than the kind of gummies another black bear seemed to be after when it raided a Colorado cannabis shop in 2019. And as Bud Depot's Nico Garza told us at the time, that bear didn't have quite so gentle a touch. We had from our security camera 
we had the fence, and then we had our uh, dumpster behind it, which is all locked up. So the bear ripped through the fence, tore it open, then proceeded to try and get into the uh, into the dumpster. And when he couldn't get into the dumpster, he uh, started moving it around. Next thing you know, he's spinning around in circles with it, and he drags this really heavy dumpster out into the parking lot and then proceeded to uh, drag it a few yards all the way across the parking lot before he, I guess, gave up and tried to find something a little bit easier to eat. Now, you told one reporter that the bear, quote, busted through like the shining. Yes, referring to that scene of Jack Nicholson when he uh, puts his face through the wall after breaking a hole in there. Because just watching him break through there, it was really reminiscent of that. (laughs) But I imagine he's a lot friendlier. I understand you've given it a nickname. Tell, <laughs> yes. tell me about that. So I've uh, nicknamed this bear Cheeseburger just because of all the good food he's been trying to get. <laughs> so the name the name was fitting. Now, the, the million-dollar question here is, of course, was there any weed in these dumpsters? I mean, is that, <laughs> is that what the bear was after? Unfortunately, no. I imagine he could probably smell something from the shop. But as far as the dumpster goes, we don't have any cannabis products in there. I'm assuming the the pot shop in itself is not responsible for attracting the bears. You know, everybody wants to work at a pot shop, so maybe the bear was just showing some <laughs> initiative and showing us what he could do with that garbage. <laughs> Nico Garza speaking with guest host Megan Williams about a bear named Cheeseburger in 2019. <laughs> I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. No news is supposed to be good news, but that's not true in Gaza right now. Tonight, the situation there grows more precarious by the moment. Airstrikes continue, Gaza's main power plant has run out of fuel, and Israel continues to block goods, including water and food, from entering the region. That's left people inside Gaza facing grave uncertainty and limited ways to communicate with loved ones outside the country, who are desperate for information. Abdallah al-Hamadni came to Canada from Gaza as a refugee. He's now a permanent resident. We reached him in Milton, Ontario. Abdallah, when was the last time you heard from your family or your wife's family in Gaza? I heard from my family last night, Mm -hmm. around 24 hours. And after electricity cut, there is no internet and no contact. What I know through like small resources here and there, they got displaced and they left their house because all the area was bombed. Where yeah. would where did they go? They live in Jabalia camp in Gaza Strip, mm-hmm. uh, like uh, closer to the border mm-hmm. uh, to the border of the camp. Now they moved to more dense area. Your wife's family, I know, is also in Gaza. How are they doing? Uh, my uh, father-in-law and my wife family, 
my wife is crying all the time they have uh, 75 individual they are gathered together and uh, they have a three-story building mm -hmm. or um, apartments mm -hmm. and they are just lying in the big hallways or just they want to survive there is no water they said that the water is finished there yeah and the situation is horrible uh, unbelievable uh, um, we are freezed in front of the screen expecting any moment uh, with their names is coming on the top of the screen and this is oh. why my wife is crying crying we live same as in gaza here in canada because our second part is in gaza we don't cook we don't eat we don't do anything we don't clean all the houses upside down only we are watching the media and we are like paralyzed we are expecting mm. we're fetching lists of names list and we trying to look look for our family family member names i'm so there. sorry abdallah oh my gosh i can't i can't explain how much from inside i am i'm scared and we are traumatized and again i'm so sorry for both sides because also the other side they have children women also and people they are civilians and we failed to protect civilians in both sides the is israeli government israeli officials you know say they they have no choice but to retaliate because what hamas has done and is still doing and holding hostages is so horrific they say they have to stomp yeah. out totally understand totally understand yeah. the problem is that you caught your political agenda with the religious hamas before now you are labeling our people like daesh or taliban mm -hmm. and you give yourself the permit to attack civilians it's not time to blame any party yeah. it's time to save civilians i'm calling for a short break only to take people from under the rubble and to give them the basic life only save civilians and find a solution maybe within this break you will think again of what you are doing we know we were speaking earlier i was speaking earlier um, on our program to uh, Jan Egland, who is saying the same thing you know he's with the norwegian refugee council and and asking for a safe humanitarian corridor and for supplies to yeah. come in but when you last spoke to your family before the electricity was cut what did they say to you you know, I have one story. I am very proud of my family. I have a mother. She is 75 years old. With her walker, after displacement, she's standing in the middle of the street, guiding people who flee from neighborhood and closed areas to save places like schools and places. This is a resilience for these people. And these people, they are brave enough. We are more, more terrified but in the ground, we have a lot of people who are trying to help and they volunteer to accept and receive other families and to protect them because there is no more resources there. This is the last story that I got from my mom and she she has a high spirit really? trying to say that the future is ours, like are children they, and women. Are they worried about... A ground invasion yeah yeah they are like they can't this is this is if they get into the ground operation it's like genocide uh, this is the end of all gaza but after that what is next 
what are you going to do to stay there or to kill more or how many people will get how much you will lose there is no winner out of this cycle uh, when your when your mother says that that the future is us you know women and children where do you think she gets that that hope and resilience because she's seen a lot of violence in her 75 years yeah we have more than four cycles waves of fights and wars in gaza and these people acquire the resilience out of these shocks every two years three years we have the same cycle and the wave become bigger and bigger and bigger. And if you solve the problem by more violence, the next wave will come much bigger. You are not protecting your people. If you kill the other side, you are bringing more danger and risk to your people. If you get through to your family again, what will you say to them? It is hard to answer, and I just want them to be safe. And... um, I will give my life to them. Uh, I feel very emotional with this question. I just, I am praying for them. I I don't have much to do. And I wish if they can get out of, from Gaza, but they refuse because they believe, they believe this is their home and this is their mm-hmm. land. And this is, and it's hard to ask them to go and leave. And it's conflicting. Even my voice, what I am saying right now to you, it's not welcomed among my community and my population because there are no middle side or no one is wise enough to tell them this is not the right way to solve problems. You're creating bigger issues. Abdullah, thank you very much for your time uh, and I hope your family is safe. Thank you. Abdallah al-Hamadni came to Canada from Gaza as a refugee and is now a permanent resident. We reached him in Milton, Ontario. The tape is off, and Christopher Wells does not like what's underneath. Mr. Wells is the co-founder of Pride Tape. Ever since Edmonton Oilers players first wrapped the ends of their hockey sticks with the rainbow tape in 2016, it's been a fixture of NHL Pride Nights. But as you've probably heard on the news, that tradition has abruptly come to an end. As first reported by OutSports last week, the NHL sent a memo to all 32 teams clarifying what is allowed during theme nights. It said that players' uniforms and gear cannot be changed to reflect those themes, including pride. Players are already rebelling. Yesterday, Philadelphia Flyers veteran Scott Lawton says he plans on using the tape despite the ban. We reached Pride Tape co-founder Christopher Wells in Edmonton. Christopher, what message do you think the NHL is sending here by by banning Pride Tape? I think it's a a form of enforced invisibility that says, we will tolerate you, but only under our rules and conditions, we're not going to celebrate you on the ice. Just to clarify, though, players were only using this tape during warm-up on Pride Nights in particular. Is is that right? Yeah, yeah. But this this band has gone a lot uh, further than, than even that. And uh, it's quite perplexing because, you know, the use of Pride tape was always uh, optional. And in fact, that was really important to us because uh, we didn't want to have uh, fake allies using the tape. 
we wanted uh, young people to know that when they saw their favorite player uh, using pride tape, that uh, they were going to stand behind and support them. Why in 2023 do you believe this is a question or, or even a controversy? I think it's part of larger trends we're seeing in society that is are really focused at uh, erasing LGBTQ uh, identities. We see this with protests against schools, banning LGBTQ books in libraries, people uh, burning pride flags or defacing rainbow crosswalks. Uh, and, and you know, sadly, the reality is we see hate crimes uh, also increasing all across this country, targeting the LGBTQ community. So for this to uh, come to uh, sports, which is at the confluence of uh, culture, particularly in Canada, is perhaps uh, not surprising, but certainly very, very disappointing. Companies, organizations, as you know, um, often have rules, you know, no no buttons or, or political slogans or, or things like that, you know, as part of their, their uniform, just generally speaking. Is this different in your view? I think it is different, partly because, you know, this is this is optional, unlike uh, the pride jerseys where the expectation was that, uh, you know, every player had to, to wear them. And, and this is where a lot of this controversy uh, started with the NHL. Um, it would be hard, I guess, press for the NHL to make a case that, a player using pride tape in a warm-up was a bona fide occupational requirement. So uh, there's a lot of people thinking that, um, you know, this is a, a case of discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, which is uh, illegal in any workplace uh, in Canada. And, uh, you know, the NHL is uh, also a workplace. If we go back a bit, why did you first invent pride tape? Well, Pride Tape really came out of a, a research question uh, we had um, when we, we were looking at uh, statistics. We, we learned quickly that uh, young gay and bisexual boys were dropping out of organized team sports at far earlier ages than their heterosexual peers. So we knew that there was a, a culture problem uh, that was um, creating unsafe uh, locker rooms or sporting environments. And so Pride Tape was really designed to be an intervention a badge of support uh, from uh, the hockey world to these young players to say, you know, we see you and we're here to uh, support you. And I think that's why it's always been successful. It's never really been about tape. It's been about uh, the message behind the tape. And what did did young players tell you about, you know, when they saw NHL players use this tape? Well, it meant everything to them to know that uh, their idols uh, – supported the community, supported uh, their uh, identity. And it, it it powerfully said that one day, you know, you can make it to the NHL and you can be yourself and be supported for that. You know, but the reality still is in the NHL, we don't have uh, one out current player or even one out retired player over the entire history uh, of the NHL. And I think that also shows you uh, the challenges that still remain. And unfortunately, you know, if you're an NHL player today and you're considering coming out, well, this ban has probably just sent you right back into the closet. Have you spoken to NHL players who are not out? Um, I haven't, uh, you know, directly, but we are certainly regularly contacted by NHL players and and many of them who are allies in fact who've ordered their own tape and uh, we've we've heard from some players already publicly who've said uh, they plan to use the tape uh, regardless uh, of the ban 
Yeah, in our introduction, uh, listeners will have heard we referenced Scott Lawton. He says he will use the tape at the Philadelphia Flyers Pride Night. That's coming up on January 10th against the the Montreal Canadiens. Other players say they support you as well. Do you think that will sway or help sway the NHL? Oh, I hope so. I don't think uh, the NHL could have uh, expected this kind of international backlash lash and certainly you know all of this uh, negative press uh, during uh, the opening of the hockey season it's really been uh, a black eye for for the league and uh, you know in some ways they've manufactured their own controversy here where none really existed because I think what gets lost in this story is that you know regardless we're talking about pride jerseys or pride tape you know the vast vast majority of NHL players supported them and they want to use it it's really the owners who have the problem uh, and I think that shows a real generational disconnect and divide, which we see all over society on LGBTQ issues. If you're if you're younger, you've grown up in a world that embraces sexual and gender diversity. And often if you're from an older generation, well, you've learned to uh, fear it. Do you have any other recourse or, or plans to fight this ban? I think, uh, you know, the strength is in the fans and uh, in the players. I know... Uh, many uh, individuals are talking about uh, contacting uh, the NHL's corporate sponsors and and letting their views be known. But uh, I think this is really uh, going to be in the hands of the players and the teams to uh, take action. Uh, you know, because this this isn't just about banning pride tape, but it also uh, limits their freedom of expression. And many of these athletes recognize the enormous privilege and platform they have as professional athletes and they want to use it to to do good and uh, to support uh, vulnerable communities and they want to use it to help grow the game you know all anybody any young hockey player wants to hear particularly if they're a young gay or lesbian or bi or trans hockey player is you know they want the game that they love to love them back thanks for this christopher my pleasure Christopher Wells is the co-founder of Pride Tape and the Canada Research Chair for the Public Understanding of Sexual and Gender Minority Youth at McEwen University. He's in Edmonton. When a stranger calls you out of the blue offering you money to solve your biggest problems, it's probably too good to be true, but not necessarily in Los Angeles. When the county's Department of Health Services makes those calls, they're legitimate, and they could include thousands of dollars of support to help at-risk individuals stave off homelessness. Even more surprising is that the technique they're using to identify these vulnerable individuals is artificial intelligence. Dana Vanderford helps run the department's Homelessness Prevention Unit, we reached her in Los Angeles. Dana, let's start at the beginning. How are you able to identify your clients and know that they're at risk of becoming homeless? Yeah, so several years ago, our partners at UCLA's California Policy Lab developed an algorithm that looks at over 400 types of county records that document interactions that individuals might be having with county services and systems. So, for example, emergency room visits, arrests, receipt of public benefits. They tested this algorithm out and found that with a fairly high degree of certainty, we could predict the kinds of interactions that folks were having who then fell into the homeless services system 12 months later. 
And so do these names and numbers just pop up on your screen? How does it present to you and your team? Yeah, we receive on a quarterly basis, a list of essentially medical record numbers. So our job then is to re-identify um, those clients, go in and, and dig in data systems for additional information. You're using the information, obviously, to help them, and we'll get at how you do that in just a moment. But as you talk about accessing those those very private records, what about privacy concerns? Yeah, it's a good question. We start with a clean slate for each of our clients. So although we know and have access to information about their histories, all we use that data uh, to tell us is that they are at risk. And then when we meet our clients, none of that information um, is is discussed. So we start with a clean slate and we know that these folks are are the folks who are most at risk. And And so I think that data sharing and access to that data is just critical if you want to build a targeted prevention program. So what happens when when your team does call these folks? What kind of reaction are they getting? We do not get hung up on as much as I thought we might. (laughs) Because Um, people just don't believe it. Well, you know, there's some skepticism. For many, it can sound too good to be true. To many who have mistrust of systems um, and of public systems that have harmed them in the past, we get skepticism there. Um, You know, folks are not able to really trust us, and that's understandable. Mm -hmm. And then there's a large number of folks who we can't reach at all. But then the folks who we do reach, you know, the reaction we get more often than not is, thank goodness you called me today. Mm -hmm. I'm losing my housing next week. Um, Or thank goodness you called me today. I just had a medical emergency last week, um, and I really need some extra support right now. So more often than not, when we do reach somebody on the phone, they're glad we called right when we yeah. called. And how much money are you offering? So our individuals get $4,000 or $6,000. They're randomized into those levels of financial assistance. Our families get six or $8,000 at a base level. And then that number increases on the family side, depending on how many folks are in the household. Mm-hmm. And, and I was reading that, it, that it's important for, for you to make sure that that they have a lot of control over how the money is spent, but you also don't put it directly into bank accounts because that could jeopardize other funding they may be getting. So how is this money used? Right. Yeah, there are the things that you'd expect that we'd pay for as a homelessness prevention program. So we help with rent. We help uh, resolve rental arrears. We provide financial assistance for utilities and utility arrears. But nothing surprises me uh, anymore these days in terms of what clients express as sort of their needs to stabilize in their existing housing. So we do a lot of stuff with vehicles. Um, You know, we will repair your vehicle. We'll get your vehicle registered. We'll get your vehicle out of a tow yard. That is becoming a more frequent payment that we make on behalf of our clients. Because Um, those cars are a lifeline for them to get to their jobs and their other things. It's not just a luxury. Right. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm better understanding now how the loss of a vehicle, not even a vehicle that somebody is living in, right? We're talking about people who are housed, but the loss of a vehicle um, immediately leads to loss of a job, um, which pretty quickly leads to loss of housing. Um, so we really try to keep people's vehicles accessible and safe and intact. So cars are a big one for us. How much does it take to get a car that's been towed? How much? So money? much. Yeah. So much money. My yeah. colleague was saying $1,500. That's That's, about right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like sort of where we start with it. So and then it goes up day by day. Mm. It's a real challenge. It's a real barrier. And it it just is 
one of those threads that once it starts kind of pulling really uh, everything sort of unravels when, when a vehicle is lost. Um, mm-hmm. So that is a big one for us. I know over the last two years, Dana, this pilot program has helped 560 people. So many, many cases, many stories. Is there one that you can share with us that stays with you? Yeah, there is a, a newer client in our program that I think about every day. Um, his name is Ricky. He is a grandfather um, he worked his whole life as a handyman. And then a year ago, he uh, starts taking care of two grandchildren, a nine and 11 year old. Um, so he assumes custody of these little ones. Ricky's life that was sort of stable, uh, you know, as a retired single person who could afford rent, suddenly changed overnight. Um, and his income was now wildly out of step with what he could afford and what he mm-hmm. could provide to his grandchildren. Um, and so I'm just so glad we met him and it's going to be a really long journey to figure out how to increase the family's income. It's going to be a long journey to figure out if we can move this family because a one bedroom, you know, apartment where now at least three, but sometimes more folks are living is not enough space. Um, I think this is a great example of a, a client that we might serve where life has just happened, as it does for all mm-hmm. of us. But when you're a person who has such little income um, and is sort of barely holding on to the stability that you've achieved, you know, one disruptive event, one significant change in your life, one medical emergency can topple everything over. There are a lot of concerns about artificial intelligence and how we use it. So how do you feel about using it in this way? I think it's a divisive conversation. I think that predictive analytics, I think that AI has a lot of potential to be used for good. We're really lucky here in LA County to have referral-based prevention programming, where if you're a person who feels like their housing is at risk, you can reach out and refer to a program where you can get similar resources to the resources that our program provides. But there's a large number of people who are, for one reason or another, never going to reach out. And so there's a real need for targeted, proactive prevention programming. It's really incredible to know with a high degree of certainty that the folks that we are serving, you know, without intervention are so likely to fall in and that we're really reaching that population of folks who have that very high risk and also would otherwise not connect to referral-based prevention programming. So I believe deeply that there's a need for targeted prevention programming and without the ability to use AI, without the ability to use machine learning, we don't have a good shot at targeting these resources to those who need them most. Dana, thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Dana Vanderford is the Associate Director of the Homelessness Prevention Unit at the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services. We reached her in Los Angeles. Ben Wilson says he's all about taking the erg and turning it into mmm. In case you need further clarification, the erg Mr. Wilson is referring to is gum that's been chewed and spat out and flattened onto the ground. For decades, he's been painting on those discarded pieces of gum, turning them into art, which I assume is the mmm. 
Now Mr. Wilson is concerned about what's going to happen to some of his creations, specifically the ones on London's Millennium Bridge, which will close on Saturday for three weeks of repairs. We reached Ben Wilson in London. Ben, where exactly in London are you right now? Uh, I'm lying on the Millennium Bridge. Um, it's, uh, it's not raining. It was earlier. It's a beautiful view. So there's a river down below and pleasure cruises moving along. It's 8 tapes, o'clock at uh, night and you're lying down on the Millennium <laughs> Bridge? Yeah, well, uh, I often do. Sometimes I do work late. Depends. Uh, each day is a different day. But at the moment, I'm fighting to save the pictures on the Millennium yes. Bridge. So it's a whole hidden trail which goes from the north end, the St. Paul's end, which is actually looking really beautiful at the moment. It's all lit up. It is and then lovely, to the yeah. tape. There is this this trail. I've seen some of these tiny, tiny images. And you do take requests. What kinds of, of scenes have you painted onto the gum on the Millennium well, Bridge in particular? You- well, kind of the, the pictures will have done us a, a nice picture of St. Paul's itself. Oh. Um, really, the pictures for me are their form of social commentary, so they relate to the people that I meet when I work. So it could be a portrait, could be, you know, things that a person likes, but they celebrate the people that I meet. They're informed by the shape of the gum, and the gum is melted within the metal tread. So there, there are all these rather interesting geometric shapes. I say to people, well, there's this hidden hidden world. If you look, you can see it. Yeah. So person standing, you know, walking by a picture, the picture exists. If you look, if you don't, don't it doesn't exist. So it's like saying hidden worlds be- lie beneath your feet. It's all about perception. What How you, closely you look yeah, determines well, what you see. It's true. It's true. <laughs> what do you hope people who, who do look take away from your art? Ah, well, kind of that people are kind of, I think, people that it's a positive message taking something that is discarded and thrown away and making it something beautiful. Hopefully, it celebrates creative thinking in one's immediate environment, you know, like that people can interact in their environment, hopefully in an empathetic way and in a creative way because it's our environment. A lot of people have seen the Millennium Bridge in films. If you've been lucky enough to visit London, you probably walked across it, but it's it's certainly busy almost all the time and I can hear people there around you. Yes, what kind of yeah. reaction? Like, are people used to seeing you there now? Or Oh, yes. I mean, people... There's, a, a there's Ben again. Extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> extraordinary. Well, it's like, well, they say... Here's the chewing gum man, because people <laughs> call me the chewing gum man. It's Ben, a.k.a. Chewing gum Are you okay man. with that title? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's fine. I mean, because it's it's, it's something that people can remember. It's, it's great because, um, you know, people are excited, you know, because I work in locations all over Europe. So from beyond the Arctic Circle, you know, to Norway, to Belgrade, you know, to Berlin, you know, to Lisbon. Maybe Canada. So, you know... I haven't been to Canada yet, but who knows? <laughs> I will be working in uh, Halle, which is near Leipzig, uh, oh. n- uh, not far from in East Germany. And they'll be paying me to go out to do a trail of pictures, you know, my fair and a de- decent uh, wage. And But here, I think that when they, that they are, I'm doing off my own back. And, and uh, these 
City Bridge Foundation responsible to Bridge want to remove initially they wanted to remove all the pictures. Yeah, I'm going to ask I've you. I've been campaigning. You, you're, that's part of why you're lying there. Yes, today, not just painting. How many of your works are on the Millennium Bridge in particular? How many do you think are there? Well, there's a good kind of, uh, uh, it's, it's hard to tell. Well, I've been working for the last 10 years. Oh, wow. This trail's been going uh, since 2013. So I estimate at least a good kind of 600, maybe more. The City Bridge Foundation appears to have given this some thought. They told The Guardian last week, you may have saw seen, that the oh, Millennium Bridge is a major yes. London landmark and it needs to be clean and tidy. But, quote, we recognize the value of Ben's art and the fact it is well-loved by many people. So in consultation with him, we have offered to let him keep a limited number of pieces of his art, which will be preserved during the maintenance work and cleaning. So we will work with Ben to identify which pieces are kept. So do yes, you, are you cut, like? Is there really a scandal here? You're getting you're getting a compromise. No, 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 no. Because the compromise is the whole trail that goes across the bridge. When I first started, they said they wanted to remove all the pictures. Okay, I could photograph so them, and okay. and then I, then I managed to get it up to fifty. Um, there's a whole trail of pictures from one end to the other. It's a form of public art. Mm-hmm. The gum is transformed. They said, well, essentially it's gum. That's what I was being told. Essentially, at first you can have one section a week and a half ago they were saying that, that there's one, there's, you can, maybe you can have one section. I said, well, that's not the point because pictures, I think, you say for me, I believe the pictures, you know, breathe life into a metal structure. It's a beautiful structure, but essentially it's inanimate. The pictures reflect, you know, the people that cross the bridge. And it's a unique form of public mm-hmm. art. And it needs to be not destroyed, protected. So you're Sign gonna... the petition, <laughs> protect the pictures, <laughs> allow art to exist in our environment. Because technically by painting on the gum, it's not under the jurisdiction of local or national government. They don't own the gum. Well, so please let them like kind of like <laughs> save at least half the pictures, which okay. would be 400, and allow me to make a coherent trail, allow art to, to, to exist in well, our environment. We'll see what happens then. <laughs> thank you for your time. Well, thank, oh, thank you for your, you know, for sharing the story. Well, listen, when else am I going to talk to someone reclining on a bridge in London? Probably yeah. never. So thank you. Yeah, well, this this is it. And maybe, who knows, maybe I'll be uh, uh, visiting Canada. We who will knows? see. <laughs> Bye, Ben. But, well, take care and, and take care and all the best. Bye. Yeah. Cheerio. Bye-bye. <laughs> ben Wilson, the chewing gum man on the Millennium Bridge in London. Now it's time for the Brunch Report. The As It Happens Brunch Report. The As It Happens Brunch Report. I love this mellow jazz stock music immediately. As soon as I heard it, I cranked it up, and every time it ended, I would put it on again. To the point where someone said maybe I'd heard it enough, and I said I will never hear it enough, and you're not the boss of me. Unfortunately, it was my boss, so I was cut off. Now, I kind of feel like I've had maybe a bit too much uh, of this song. I'm abruptly totally sick of it. (laughs) That's not true. Obviously, I love this music. We all do. That was just an analogy for brunch, or more particularly for bottomless mimosas at brunch, a drink special offered by lots of brunch places. 
including Kitchen Story in Oakland, California, which has put up a sign that reads, Dear All Mimosa Lovers, Please Drink Responsibly and Know Your Limits. A $50 cleaning fee will be automatically included when you throw up in our public areas. Thank you so much for understanding. Smiley face emoji. Uh, Like your fifth mimosa on a Sunday morning, that sign feels a bit much. But Kitchen Story is just one of a surprising number of places in a recent SFGate article that have policies and fees regarding hurling in and around their premises during or after brunch, which I guess is a natural consequence of drinking an unnatural amount of bottomless mimosa. The good news is these policies seem to be working. You wouldn't think brunch folk would need to be reminded, but it's before noon, so wherever and whatever you're eating, try to keep it down. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksal. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.